That was fun. Children, speaking of children, you guys are dismissed to uh, Kids Connection or Children's Church, four-year-olds through third grade. You can make your way there now. It's good to see everybody here. We tried this week uh, to get in here for about 30 minutes and figure out all of my microphone issues for the last uh, month or so. This microphone just doesn't like me. Um, and we got in here and figured them all out, and this morning in first service, they were all back. So it's spiritual warfare, that's what we've determined. So a couple of you could just pray about that during the course of the sermon, and maybe they'll go away. Uh, turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be, I, I say continuing, but really just starting our study together of this great book. And by way of introduction, what I want you to do is think through the prayers that you pray. Take just a second and characterize your prayer life. In fact, I want you to give, not out loud, but maybe to the person next to you, give your prayer life a rating. Rate it from zero stars to five stars and kind of share it with the person uh, that's beside you. Uh, You know, they might know you better than you know yourself. But zero stars, you don't pray. Five stars, uh, you know, you pray all the time. Give your, everybody basically a two, I think, is what everybody said. Everybody said two. You know, we don't want to give ourselves one. Certainly we're not a five. Just kind of settle in about two. Not not, Not counting the service, when was the last time you prayed? What drives you to pray? Do you pray? Maybe prayer for you is routine, mealtime, bedtime. Maybe it's dynamic and continual. Maybe it's intentional and well-ordered. You keep a journal, something like that. What are the contents of the prayers you pray? Are your prayers entirely self-focused? Or maybe you've disciplined yourself and made them others-focused. Maybe you pray, but you, you feel like your prayers sort of go up, and then they just come right back down. Maybe your prayers are rambling and sort of messy, Maybe you wonder if God is even really listening at all. Maybe you view prayer as pointless, that God's going to do what God is going to do. So, so why pray? And questions about our prayer life, I think, make us squirm a little. You probably agree with Martin Luther. He said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Well, here in the first chapter of Philippians, we have a window into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. By now you've picked up on my love and admiration for the Apostle Paul. Though he was described as short and unattractive, so for me, very easy to relate to, um, Paul was this spiritual giant. And here at the beginning of Philippians, we get to see the things that drive Paul to pray. We get to see the content of his prayer for the church at Philippi. Why he's thankful for them. How he feels about them. We basically get to see what's important to Paul. Because if you're a believer, what's probably most revealed through your prayer life are the things that are important to you. Simply stated, you pray about what you care about. Parents pray about their kids. The elderly pray about their health. Students pray about their tests. The patriotic pray for their country. Farmers pray for the right conditions. Husbands pray, pray, pray for wives. Wives pray for husbands. These are all good things. And what do they chiefly reflect? What we care about. Our prayers are comprised of the concerns that are right there in front of us every day. We're still just starting our study of the epistle to the Philippians. And what we know thus far 
is that this first church that's been planted on European soil was planted by the Apostle Paul in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. It was planted at this city, Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, which means it had a special distinction. Though 1,200 miles from Rome, it was thoroughly Roman. Roman customs, Roman architecture, Roman religion, Roman citizens, Roman law and privilege. These things were deeply uh, woven into the culture at Philippi. Its proud Roman citizens were not fond of foreign religion, so much so that when the church was being established, what you had was civil unrest in Philippi. The gospel started upsetting the culture, and so Paul and Silas, they were beaten, and they were put in stocks for preaching Christ. If you remember in Acts 16, Paul was unjustly placed in prison, yet God used an earthquake to free him. And incidentally, that earthquake and, and, and the shaking of the prison bars and the, and, and the prison walls also led the Philippian jailer and his family to faith in Christ. And so you have this church being started at Philippi. And you remember as a Roman citizen himself, Paul used the way that he was mistreated there to establish and to protect this new church. Paul endured great suffering because he knew that it would give this church leverage and maybe even survival. We saw last week that this church, 10 years old at the time that Paul was writing the letter, that it was healthy and it was established. It had beaten the odds. It was organized under the leadership of elders and deacons. God had built his church in Philippi. Additionally, the church at Philippi was on mission they were generous in supporting Paul's ministry. This is a fact that he points out several times in the New Testament. They were on board, and it's their generosity that prompted the epistle that we're studying. Philippians is basically a thank you note to the saints at Philippi for the gift that they had sent to Paul while he was again in prison, this time in Rome. It's a personal letter. It's a joyful letter. It's a really beautiful letter from a pastor church planter to a church that God had him established. And in the nine verses that follow the introduction, we looked at those first two introductory verses last week, these nine verses that we're studying today, we are able to read of Paul's heart for the Philippians. Perhaps no other church that Paul established was as dear to him as this group of believers in Philippi. So from our text, I'll point out three things this morning. The nature of Paul's gratitude for this church, his affection for this church, and then how he prays or what he prays for this church. His gratitude, his affection, and his prayer. Let's read Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11 together. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. And I am sure of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you, excuse me, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the 
praise of God. This is God's word. We see Paul's gratitude. For, t- for Paul to express thanks at the beginning of an epistle was pretty common. He did it in almost every letter. He didn't do it with the Galatians because they were in trouble, but he did it at almost every letter. So for him to express gratitude for the Philippians in verse 3 really isn't unique, but Paul does, however, frame his, his, his gratitude around a couple of things that I think are worth pointing out. They're worth pointing out because they give us uh, some insight into his relationship uh, to this church. But before I point those things out, let me just say that gratitude should mark you out as a believer in Christ Jesus. If a Christian is anything, he must be thankful. Look at Paul here. He says, I'm thankful always and every for all of you. He's, he's so grateful that he's, he's stumbling over even how to say it, even how to express how grateful and thankful that he is. One real, realization that I've come to is that I am a man that is oppressed by gratitude. And what I mean by that is as my life unfolds, the layers at which I owe God thanks are unending. Every day, hundreds of tiny graces add up, and the sum total of them is a life that is all of grace, personal reasons to be thankful, salvation and family and church and kids and provision for needs and providential circumstances, all sorts of things. And then we have impersonal reasons to be grateful. I mean, look around you this morning. The creation itself, as you drove here, it should just give you every day, if your eyes are open to it, a thousand things to be thankful for. God has been giving me a grateful heart for the intricacies that are found in his creation. I'm going to read part of a journal entry that I made a couple of years ago. Think about it. This place we've named Earth is just far enough away from a massive flaming ball of gas and light that I can be chilly in January and sweaty in August, but most times in between I'm generally comfortable. Any closer and my eyes would melt inside my head, any further away and my frozen teeth would shatter into little pieces. It's far enough to make food actually grow out of the ground and close enough to make my kid's skin the most beautiful shade of brown. Further, this orb is suspended in space and it's tilted. It's orbiting the aforementioned ball of exploding gas and it's spinning, whirling around at just the correct angle and velocity that my feet actually stick to it. If it sped up, I'd go flying off in the upper upper atmosphere. If it slowed down, I'd be crushed. Yet I can jump. Don't even get me started on how I can tell my legs to jump and they actually respond. But I can jump and I leave its grasp for a fraction of a second. Yet it binds me to the present. It holds me close, but not as a prisoner. It holds me as grateful guest. We lose sight of gratitude. We lose sight of all the tiny intricacies that we have to be grateful for. We think we are owed something in this life, but we are creatures. We are not creators. We are creation. We are owed nothing. And Paul did very well to remember this. He lived gratefully. And we see here that his gratitude for the Philippians is something that brings him joy. It is joyful gratitude. Later on in the book, at the start of chapter 4, he would call this church his crowning joy. The Philippians were special to Paul. It brought him great joy. And I'd also add this, true thankfulness is always a catalyst for joy. Just as grace and peace are linked together in verse 2, 
Gratitude and joy are linked together. Just as oxygen and nitrogen make up our atmosphere, gratitude and joy make up the atmosphere of a believer in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. I think joy is a part of that richness. I think that's what we see in Paul, a man so thankful that he can't help but be accompanied by joy, deep joy. The second aspect of his gratitude, his gratitude toward the Philippians, is that it is gospel-centered. Paul is thankful, as verse 5 explains, for their, and I'm going to read the way the New King James and the King James Version say it, he is grateful for their fellowship in the gospel. Now, we've made fellowship an all-inclusive word in the church, right? We have fellowship suppers that meet in the fellowship hall. We play ping-pong with the youth, and we call it the fellowship time. In the bulletin, we make announcements about wonderful opportunities for fellowship. We gather at each other's houses for parties. We eat each other's food. We sit on each other's couches, and we do so all in the name of fellowship. It's a catch-all term. If we in the church, in any church, actually are doing something, anything that doesn't involve coming into a room and sitting in rows like this, we classify it as as fellowship. Well, you can see, by the way, the ESV, which is the version I read from this morning, or if you have an NIV, if you see, by the way, they've translated that word, there's a better way to understand the term fellowship, and it's the idea of partnership. You remember the, the Tolkien books? Maybe you've only seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings. What a great trilogy of books with an equally great series of movies. But remember the name of the first book in the trilogy? It was The Fellowship of the Ring. And why was that the title? Because it was the story of a group assembled for a certain mission, a particular adventure. The members of the group were from all different cultures and species of Middle Earth. You had elves and a dwarf and a wizard and men and hobbits. In this diverse group of individuals, they came together for a mission, a task, which was to save Middle-earth through the destruction of the evil ring of power. And Tolkien, who was a master of language, called this group a fellowship. Thus, the title of the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. And that is perfectly, and I think intentionally, characterizing Christian fellowship. It's partnership that extends beyond some shallow idea of friendship. Friendship is not the goal of fellowship. There is a bigger mission at stake that binds the heart of Paul to these believers. And that mission is the mission of the gospel. It's seeing the gospel spread into places where Christ has not been named. They are established partners I'd say to you guys this morning, we gather here not just to have friends, though that's a wonderful byproduct of Christian fellowship. We gather here, though, to partner in the gospel, to find ways and people and strategies that help us better propagate the gospel. And we want to support those strategies with our gifts and our prayers and our finances. Our fellowship is to cooperate and task that will see the gospel go forward, go forward into our hearts and lives, go forward into our community and into our city and into our state and our world. That's the biblical meaning of fellowship. Look around you for a second. There is no reason for you to get along with the people sitting in this room. Seriously. You are too different. 
different backgrounds and interests and vocations and seasons of life and marital, sta marital statuses and personalities, it makes very little sense for you to want to come into this place and hang out with a bunch of people that you wouldn't necessarily choose to be friends with otherwise. But when the gospel comes into the picture, now we have a reason to fellowship. We have something to rally around. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, says that friendship for the sake of friendship never works. He says there's a reason that people who really want friends usually don't have them. And it's because true friendship needs to be about something. It needs to be about something besides friendship. If our focus is merely knowing one another, we will grow weary of it very quickly. If our focus is just friendship as an end to itself, we will not be satisfied with it at all. True relationship needs to be about something. I think this is illustrated best in those marriages that we see, those marriages that last for 25 years, and then suddenly they end in divorce. And when this happens, nobody really understands quite what went wrong. But I think I know what goes wrong. Because a marriage can very easily be about the kids or about the house or about the next big thing on the calendar. And it can endure that sort of dysfunction because it's existing for something else. But when the nest is left empty and the dream home is built and all that's left is each other, couples are faced with the fact that there is nothing for the relationship to be about except each other. And they have to face the fact that they don't really even like each other. So they bail and it ends in a divorce. And I'll say this, this is why churches who lose gospel focus, who lose gospel partnership and mission, this is why those churches just break apart. Because our tiny lives and personalities and likes and dislikes, they're not interesting enough or powerful enough to sustain this thing called church. If the church is about us, then turn out the light if you're the, la if, if you're the last one out, because it's over. But if it's about mission, about partnership or fellowship in the gospel in order to bring God great glory, then the church can thrive, no matter how odd or smart or gifted or poor or rich the people in it may be. We come together and let our lives and relationship and existence be about something bigger than just each other. We lock arms for the fame of Jesus Christ. We partner in the gospel, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. I am thankful for that. That's what Paul is expressing thankfulness for as well. Paul points out the power of partnership in the next verse. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God had started the work in Philippi when he opened Lydia's heart. She was the businesswoman that Paul had met at the river there in Acts chapter 16. God had opened her heart. She believed. God started the work with her. And since he started it, he was going to finish it. Paul was confident in this. And herein lies another reason he was thankful. Because God had powerly, powerfully and sovereignly moved to start a church in Philippi. And God powerfully and sovereignly finishes the things that he starts. And before I move on, just apply that to your own life this morning. Has God started a work in you? Who started the work again? God. And who will complete the work? God. 
And so I don't care if you're 9 or if you're 90, if God has started a work in you, He is faithful to complete it. You are on God's to-do list. Rest in that. Be assured by that. Be warmed and encouraged by that reality. And apply that to our church as well. Let it be a source of gospel confidence and thanksgiving. Allow it to fuel this partnership. God is preserving and propagating and protecting what he has started and he will bring it to completion. So that's Paul's gratitude, his thankfulness. Next we see Paul's affections. All this thankfulness led Paul to have a deep affection for the Philippians. And here in verse 8 we see Paul swear or he makes an oath regarding his affection for them. The text says he yearns for them. And the word it uses for affections in the King James is translated bowels. The ancients, they viewed the bowels or the guts sort of of a person as the core of their emotions. And so Paul is saying to these Philippians, I swear to you, church, this is what he's saying, I swear to you that I yearn for you with all of my guts. In the deepest part of me, I love you and I want to be with you. And I'll say this to you guys this morning as Enid Mennonite Brethren Church, you need to know the extent to which I yearn for you. I'm your pastor, and I know I've only been around for like six weeks, but you are deeply loved by me. To use the language of Paul, you are in my guts. I yearn for you. And some of you are like, you've never even said hello to me. (laughs) But I assure you, I love you. And I know this because when I wake up in the morning, there are three things I wake up thinking about. Three things on my mind to pray for. My wife, Mandy, my kids, Avery Mia and Jack Dallas, and my church. Remember the idea that I started with. You pray about what you care about. I know that I care a lot about this church because I pray a lot about this church. And one of the reasons I pray is because there is a profound sense in which prayerlessness is just pride. The person who does not pray sees themselves as sufficient for the task. And let me inform you, I am not sufficient for the task to be your pastor. I've never done this before. I don't have the strength in me to do this. I can can only do this with Christ in me, so I pray. I am so weak that I have to pray. That's my view of prayer but I am so loved by God that I get to pray. The Lord of the universe actually hears my voice when I call out to him in prayer. So Paul's love for this church is strong, so strong that he has to include this oath. He writes, as God is my witness, I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. And this he does to get them to believe that he really means what he's saying. He really means the deep affection that he has for the Philippians. This isn't just pastor talk. He really means what he's saying. I really mean what I've just said. Then we see Paul's supplications, what he prays for. We see his primary prayer for this church. It's communicated here. He communicates how thankful he is for them, for their partnership in the gospel. He's tried to prove how much he cares about them, what he feels for them in his heart. And now we see what he prays for them. And what we see here are a group of earnest Requests. He doesn't just pray for health or well-being. 
Prosperity isn't on his mind. He's not praying that the right rulers and magistrates might come into office in Philippi. He's not praying for the type of stuff that we tend to pray so often for. His prayer is earnest and it's weighty and it's personal. It's very specific to their context. Let's break these requests down. First, he prays that their love would abound more and more. So following this great communication of affection in verse 8, that he loves them with all his guts, with all his bowels, he's saying to them, I want you to grow in your love. And Paul is addressing the Roman appreciation for the Stoics. The Stoics were the ancient philosophers who prided themselves in being purely intellectual. They didn't get caught up in the trappings of, of things like emotions. So Paul is being anything but stoic in his prayer letter. He's urging them. In fact, he's praying that they would come to the same place, that they would not be stoic, but they would be abounding in their love. And notice that Paul is, is praying this. He's not commanding love out of them. He's not like I am with my kids sometimes. You need to love your sister, right? He's not after just behavior modification, because... We only modify our behavior so long before our enthusiasm starts to wane. He wants their love to abound more and more, to grow, not to wane. And that takes divine empowerment. Thus, his, pr- his prayer is that their love would just grow and abound. Yet he doesn't just want them to be sentimental and syrupy in their love. He's not asking for what I call sloppy agape. He wants their love to be rooted Somewhere. He wants it to be rooted in knowledge and discernment. He has a concern that they need to be able to approve these things that are excellent and these things that are not so excellent. Further, he desires that the abounding love they experience will lead them to live more holy lives, expressed in, in the idea that he says that you might be pure and blameless. And the question you might be asking is, well, how, how does abounding love live lead to a pure and and blameless life? How do we connect love and sanctification? Well, I think sanctification, the process of us becoming more holy and Christ-like, is rooted in discovering how sinful we are and learning to turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith. It's as Jonathan Edwards once said, the closer I get to God, the more sinful I become. And what he's saying is the nearer I get to God and understand His holiness, the more I see of myself and the more of my sin I see and my blame shows up. This is true of Paul. Why elsewhere in Scripture would Paul label himself the chief of sinners? That of all the people who sin, Paul's saying, I'm the number one guy in that group. Is he just being dramatic? No. He's displaying his sanctification. He's drawn near to God, and in drawing near to God, he sees God's holy. He sees more of God and who God is, and in seeing more of who God is, he sees more of who himself is. And it doesn't lead him to places of guilt and shame. It leads him to places of worship and and wonder and awe of this mighty God who has saved him in the place that he is. My point is, we are all a mess in this place this morning. We have sins and hang-ups and strongholds and weaknesses. And it would do us best as a church to stop pretending that those things aren't there. We need to stop hiding those things for fear that if the person beside us really knew about them, they wouldn't love us. 
The people in this room are to be abounding in their love for you. That's why Paul is praying this. As people being drawn into Jesus' love, we can love each other unconditionally as Jesus does. And we can live lives of utter transparency because we know the church is the safest place on earth to share our struggles and fears and hang-ups and sins. And it's the safest place on earth because it's the most loving place on earth. Furthermore, it's full of people that have struggled and are struggling with the exact same things as everybody else. We are all a piece of work. You know what the gospel says? It says that you were such a piece of work that Jesus, God's son, had to come and die for you. That's how messed up you are. And it says that you were such a piece of work that Jesus, God's son, came to die for you. That's just how loved you are. You are such a piece of work. The gospel is the greatest criticism and the greatest compliment you'll ever receive. The greatest criticism, you're a rotten sinner. The greatest compliment, Jesus Christ loves you and died to be your Savior. Let's circle back to the start as I wrap this up. People who don't care about anything aren't likely to pray for anything. If you don't care about your church, your neighbors, your city, the unreached, our missionary partners, you'll never pray for them. It won't even cross your mind. You'll stick to praying for more comfort, more prosperity, more health, more of a lot of things you already have because you care about all those things so much that you can't bear the thought of living without them. I've been convicted of this just the other night. I laid down with Jack and I said, okay, Jack, what do you want to pray for? And I thought he would say mommy or his sisters or papa or our dog or you know all these things that a prayer that that a four-year-old usually prays for and after i asked that question without missing a beat he named one of our neighbors and he wanted to pray for them somewhere in his little four-year-old heart and mind he knew that our neighbor was lost and wanted to pray for our neighbor he cared about our neighbor what does your prayer life say that you care about What does our collective prayer life as the church gathered say that we care about? I appreciate Paul's prayer life. He's thankful for the right things, partnership in the gospel. He's genuine in his affections. He yearns for people. He doesn't yearn for possessions. He yearns for people. And he's earnest in what he intercedes for, love and discernment and holiness. And ultimately, as we see there in verse 11, that God's glory might be made manifest. I want our prayer life to mirror Paul's prayer life. And it doesn't have to be an either or. It can be those other things too. It needs to be a both and. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as the church gathered here, we are a fellowship. And we confess together that doesn't mean we're just a friendship, that there aren't just relationships in this room. We, we want to be a partnership in the gospel. We want to preach the gospel into each other's hearts. We want to preach the gospel into the heart of our city. And we want to preach the gospel into the hearts of those around the world who have never even heard the name Jesus. They don't even have a category for 
a God who would come and die on a cross for them so that they might be right with God and live eternally in heaven with him. That's our big mission. That's what we can rally around today, God. We are not interesting enough to sustain this place. But you are, and your mission is big. And we want to pray big, and we want to love big, and we want to love each other well. And we want this place to be a place where we can come, and we can be real, and we can be sinful in, in, in the way that we express our struggles. And we want to be caring, and, and, and God, we want to just be able to, to look each other in the eye and say that I love you. Despite your sin, I love you, and I want, to, I want to walk with you out of these struggles and these strongholds. God, I pray that love would abound in this place. And that the, as the love abounds here, that people in our city look at this place and see the love of this church, Lord, that it would overflow into the streets, into the, into the neighborhoods, and into the schools, and, and into the places where you want to sovereignly and powerfully uh, direct it. We pray all these things in the, in the name and through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Becoming more like Christ is rooted, rooted in knowing how sinful I am. It kind of struck me. But we do have a great high priest. And uh, this song is... Uh, discovered this week thanks to Pastor Jay. It's a great hymn. Great hymn. You may know it. If you do, sing along. Sing a few verses. So join me as you feel.
this time of gathering together. I just want to make uh, mention real fast, one of our own, uh, Gay Tays, um, went to the hospital yesterday. She's having heart um, chest pains and uh, found that two main arteries were blocked and um, had four stents put in um, between the first service and um, this service. And I got a report back that that went well and she is recovering, sleeping, and she'll be home tomorrow. Um, let's just give thanks uh, to God for that. Father, we pray, uh, we bow before you, your people. Um, God, we just want to lift up um, gay taste to you um, and her family, uh, the doctors that, that were there in the city working on her. Lord, we praise your name. You are mighty. You are able. You are the healer. And uh, we thank you for a good report. Um, God, give her rest um, so that she would recover quickly. Uh, we praise your name. Jesus' name alone.